And Randall O'Toole is on the line. He is uh, an expert in transportation and urban planning. And uh, uh, we, last time he was on the air, he mentioned this book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And so we want to talk about that. Randall O'Toole, welcome to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. Hi, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? Great. Well, I got the book. I have not read the whole book, Randall. But I started, and the very first thing I have to say is this was written by Jane Jacobs back in, uh, let's see, what was it? Copyright was 1960. Yep. And um, so in her acknowledgments, she uh, said she wanted to thank the following persons. And there's a whole list of people that she wanted to thank. But first and foremost was Saul Alinsky, the the author of Rules for Radicals. I about fell off my chair when I saw that. Well, Jane Jacobs was facing an interesting problem. Today, uh, people living in neighborhoods of single-family homes are being besieged by people who say, uh, you're racist unless you allow somebody to build a five-story apartment building in your neighborhood. Uh, Jane Jacobs was living in a five-story apartment building, and she was told that she was a racist unless she allowed people to tear down her building and build a skyscraper, a 10- or 20-story apartment building. And she didn't want to lose her neighborhood to 10 or 20-story apartment buildings, just as today people in single-family neighborhoods don't want to lose their neighborhoods to five-story apartment buildings. So she organized and uh, got people to fight the uh, plans and succeeded and, and, and saved her neighborhood from being torn down and turned into high-rise apartment buildings. Uh, I don't know if today she would sympathize with people who live in single-family neighborhoods, but she wrote The Death and Life of of Great American Cities to defend her neighborhood, and unfortunately it's been misinterpreted by urban planners who say, well, if her neighborhood was so great, then all neighborhoods should be like her neighborhood, uh, and we should tear down single-family homes and replace them with five-story apartment buildings. Boy, and, we're and that's been the mistake that is it is killing uh, cities today. Well, we're seeing that in Denver, uh, up and down the corridor. You're seeing in there. They're trying to put them next to light rail, and uh, I mean, Karen, they're four and five story apartment buildings. That is absolutely astounding, Randall. Well, the the amazing thing is, uh, really, urban planners have had this mania for density. Mm-hmm. And they were going for high-rise buildings, and, they, and Jane Jacobs killed that. Uh, but now they're going for mid-rise, and it's still it's the same mania. It's still density is better. Uh, private ownership is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, commons is good, and, and things like this. So we end up, uh, uh, more and more people end up having to live in, in areas of little privacy, tiny apartments, uh, and uh, noise and, and so on and so forth, and unfortunately a little bit higher crime uh, in, in neighborhoods that have more commons and less private, private land, uh, as you find in single-family neighborhoods. Well, and if people freely want to you know, move into a, a mid-rise apartment, hey, more power to you. But Karen and I were talking about out here in Colorado, I think you're familiar with it, Randall, uh, is we have this construction defects uh, legislation, which basically has prevented condominium uh, development. And, and condominiums typically were a way for people to start to 
build equity that they could then sell that and then maybe buy that single family house. It was, you know, a way to start to create wealth with apartments. You know, basically you pay rent and you're not creating any equity. But it seems that planners out here in Colorado have have really wanted to put people into apartments versus this home ownership or even condo ownership. Well, even condo ownership is less than desirable because there's high condo fees and you still have a lot of uh, uh, common areas. You don't have your own little garden and things like that. Uh, and as a result, nationwide, even in places that don't have the anti-condo legislation like Colorado has, uh, 17 out of 20 people living in multifamily apart- buildings are renters, whereas 17 out of 20 people living in single-family buildings are homeowners. Uh, home ownership uh, just works better for single-family homes than for uh, multifamily. And I think most people, most Americans, most people worldwide see multifamily as something that you either do when you, because you can't afford a single-family home or it's a transition to a single-family home. You're, you're starting out, you, you move into multifamily. When you start earning enough money, then you move into a single-family home and hopefully buy it. Uh, and, and urban planners want to turn this upside down. They want to make it so that multifamily is the... Uh, end-all, be-all of, of housing, and they've succeeded in doing that in, in Britain and in other parts of Europe uh, by following the urban planning uh, uh, mandates to build all this multifamily, even though people don't want it. And uh, to do it, of course, they have to subsidize it. They have to forbid single-family uh, or at least uh, make it so expensive that people can't afford it. Well, and Randall, that's one of the things that when we I start the show, the real questions out there when you look at these things is freedom versus force or force versus freedom. So what you just mentioned was uh, subsidizing a certain kind of housing or, you know, they may make it difficult from a, a zoning situation for people to have single family homes, but they lighten up those rules and regulations for what these planners think or, you know, what they want. And uh, so it's really taken freedom out of the market from what I can see. Yes. And, you know, the the first thing is uh, they restrict rural land development. Boulder did this on a massive scale. They did it by buying uh, land or buying uh, conservation easements on land equal to almost ten times the area of the city of Boulder itself. Now, the west side of Boulder, of course, is bordered by the, by the National Forest. So north, south, and east, they've got a huge swath of land they call the Green Belt, and you can't build on it because it's either government-owned or it's got conservation easements. So if you work in Boulder, but you can't afford to live in a house there, you end up having to commute a long way. And because of the Green Belt, Boulder is the most expensive city uh, in a non-coastal state in the United States. Denver isn't that far behind. Denver has an urban growth boundary uh, around Denver, Westminster, you know, all the communities in the Denver urban area. And it's very difficult to build. And if you couldn't buy 1,000 acres and build 10,000 homes outside of the urban growth boundary in in Colorado, uh, in uh, uh, Wyoming or Nevada or uh, Arizona, you can buy 10,000 acres and build build uh, 50,000 homes or whatever. And you see that happening all the time in 
in around Las Vegas, around Phoenix, uh, around Houston, around Dallas, uh, these big master plan communities that end up being extremely affordable and keeping the market as a whole very affordable. You can't do that in Denver. You can't do it in California. You can't do it in Oregon or Washington because of land use restrictions. So we have on one hand restrictions on low-density development, and on the other hand, even with the restrictions, people would rather not build, live in a multifamily home, so we end up having to subsidize the multifamily. And uh, I haven't checked uh, every development in uh, uh, Denver, but you look at those five-story buildings, you check the records, an awful lot of them are getting what are called tax increment finance subsidies from the cities in which they're being built. That means that the property taxes that they end up paying go to subsidize their construction rather than going to the urban services that are consumed by those areas, which means everybody else has to pay more taxes to uh, uh, provide urban services to those regions, to those uh, developments. Well, and it seems to me, Randall, we're going to go to break, but and so maybe uh, we can talk about this when we come back, but the, the cities that are getting into the situation where they're restricting growth, it seems like we're getting into the kind of the haves and the have-nots where we're starting to see a real um, you know, squeeze on the middle class, and, and a vibrant middle class is what's been so special about the American idea. So you see like cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, and, and we're even ha- starting to have it here in Denver that there's the haves and the have-nots, and so, there's some parts of these cities that look like third-world countries. So let's go to break. When we come back, I, I'd love to have you adr- address that. Hey, welcome back to the Americhicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. We're having a conversation with Randall O'Toole. He is an expert on transportation and housing and urban planning, and he uh, writes extensively. It's just great to have you on the line, Randall. And I, I uh, had a question for you as we went to break, but before we get to that, uh, Karen had a question for you. Um, so, Randall, when we were talking about single-family home ownership and that that is the preference or that really is how you build wealth, um, for me, there was a, a bit of a pause from the standpoint that um, as a real estate agent um, for 30 years, I have found that I have clientele that really appreciates and has a desire to be in multifamily at certain stages in their life. And they don't want to be renters. They want to be homeowners. Um, So I think that it's not necessarily an all or nothing situation. And I'd love your thoughts on that regarding um, there is a place in our marketplace for ownership units that are multifamily. Well, you know, before they started putting in our urban growth boundaries, they zoned the cities, but uh, generally cities, that were zoned had plenty of land zoned for multifamily. That was partly because realtors and developers believed that they could make more money from multifamily uh, because on one acre you could squeeze more people in and you could earn more uh, money from selling or renting to those people. Uh, and so there was plenty of land zoned for multifamily inside the cities. Outside the cities, generally, there was no zoning until the last few decades, and so you could build whatever the market wanted. So I don't really see that there have been any market uh, or any restrictions on multifamily from zoning until uh, uh, we started putting in the urban growth boundaries. And then we made land so expensive it's become very difficult to build anything at all that's affordable. 
And that's really the problem, is that land is very, very expensive. You want to build something that's affordable, uh, you first of all have to deal with the fact that you've got high cost of land. Second, if you want to build multifamily and you build more than two stories tall, it costs a lot more to build uh, per square foot, anything that's taller than two stories. And so that drives up your costs. And this is what's really going on here. We've uh, increased the cost of land, we've increased the cost of construction, and we've increased labor costs because in order to pay for uh, labor, you have to pay them enough to, uh, uh, for them to house themselves. And since housing has become expensive in places like Boulder and Denver and, and San Francisco, uh, labor costs are higher, and that makes housing costs even higher uh, uh, to a greater degree. Well, and Randall, to your point, you said that the housing or the uh, land costs have gone up, that the construction costs have gone up, and labor costs have gone up. But if you look at underlying, the reasons that they are going up is because of government policy. That's right. Mm-hmm. So that's the important. That's, right. that's the important thing. And and I think that uh, the, on the National Board of Realtors website that they said that they can document. Well, they said that. of the cost of a new house goes to rules and regulations. If we're serious about wanting to reduce, have affordable housing, then we need to be reducing those costs. Just think with a a magic wand, you could reduce housing costs by 25%. That makes it a lot more affordable for everybody. But you know what? Then the planners don't have the control. But that 25% is a national average. In Denver, it's 50%. In San Francisco, it's 80%. In, in Seattle, it's about 60 or 70 percent. So uh, in Houston, it's maybe 5 percent or, or less. So uh, that the 25 percent doesn't apply to Denver. If, if you got rid of the urban growth boundaries and the Boulder Green Belts, uh, Denver prices would fall by half. Wow, you talk about making housing affordable. That will do that. So, okay, Randall, the, the question I wanted to ask you, though, because what we are seeing with these these cities that are putting in these urban boundaries and and uh, they're making it so difficult for the middle class, like San Francisco, it's the haves and it's the have-nots. The middle class is being pushed out, but yet they want to subsidize, you know, the the quote unquote the poor, the uh, disadvantaged, and uh, and these these cities. There's parts of them that look like third world countries. How I mean, you talk about the death of a great American city. When you look at trash and people defecating on the street, I mean, how is this happening, Randall O'Toole? Well, first of all, let's distinguish between middle class and middle income. Uh, middle class, uh, sociologically, is people who have college educations and who work with their minds rather than with their hands, man- doing manual labor. Uh, and middle income is roughly the half of the people who earn somewhere in the middle rather than the very rich or the very poor. Uh, so only about 30% of Americans are middle class. Only about 30% of Americans have college degrees. And yet the middle income people is a much bigger class. It includes a lot of working class people who have good incomes uh, because uh, there's a lot of good working class jobs out there. Uh, so uh, what we're seeing in these cities is they are going after what has been called the creative class. Well, what's a creative class? It's people with college degrees. They're going after, uh, they're trying to get people who have college degrees to, to move to their cities, and they're trying to push away people who don't have college degrees, the working class. So when they say creative class, what they mean is they're anti-working class and they're pro 
middle class or pro-college degree types. Uh, Well, guess who doesn't have a lot of college degrees? Blacks. I I kind of think of blacks as a bellwether. Blacks have historically had only about 60% of the per capita incomes of whites. They have much lower rates of of, uh, high school graduation, much lower rates of college graduation. So you look at what's happening to blacks in these cities, and you can see what's happening to working-class people in general, working-class white, working-class Latino, and so on. I'm just using blacks as a bellwether. And if you look around the the country and you say, well, where are blacks moving to? That must be places that are racially friendly. And where are blacks moving from? Those must be places that are racist. Well, the most racist cities in America are Los Angeles and San Francisco. Uh, Black populations there are declining almost every year, according to the census. Uh, And so we're seeing this huge exodus of people from uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco, blacks, but also were other working class. Meanwhile, Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, southern cities that we think of as being historically racist, that's where the blacks are moving. We've got huge increases in black populations. Much, they're growing much faster than white populations. Why? Because housing is affordable there. They can get jobs and they can pay for housing there. Uh, Denver, Portland, Seattle, uh, they have urban growth boundaries. They haven't become as expensive as San Francisco and Los Angeles. We aren't seeing black populations decline, but what we are seeing is black home ownership is declining much faster than white home ownership. Black residencies in single-family homes is declining much faster than, in, than whites. And so uh, whites have been able to maintain their single-family uh, home residencies They've been able to maintain their home ownership rates, but black home ownership and black living in single-family homes are, are just dropping dramatically. And so uh, we're pushing, basically, the working class out of single-family neighborhoods. We're pushing them out of home ownership. We're pushing them into apartments. And we, we see urban planners being so callous because they actually write in their plans that we have a target of reducing single-family residency in our urban area from 65% to 40%, uh, which means 25% of the people who would rather live in, multi- in single-family homes are going to be forced to live in multifamily. And so we're not forcing anybody to do, to do anything. Uh, no, we're not forcing any particular person, but you're making it too expensive for 25% of the people to live in single-family, and they have to live in multifamily. Well, and so this is this brings up the word regentrification, and we've seen this in uh, uh, up at kind of in the Five Points area in uh, Denver, which had traditionally been uh, a black area. And, and right. so, what what I've seen happen then is you see government policy, uh, governments um, you know involved in regentrifying a neighborhood, so they're putting money into that. It increases the property taxes, and so those families that were in single-family houses are having a heck of a time because the property taxes go up, and then you see it it makes it easy for developers to come in. They buy that property. They put up the four- or five-story apartment building, and then this is pushing these people out of their neighborhoods and... uh, Again, I don't think that people could quite put their finger on what was happening. Karen and I talked about it earlier in the show that, that you know, there's something that's kind of making your tummy go, something's not quite right here. But am I correct on that, on regentrification? Well, there's a couple of things going on. One is that 
uh, they're using tax increment financing often to support these five-story buildings. A tax increment financing works by taking all the property taxes from the new construction and devoting it to subsidizing the new construction. Well, the people living in that building still use fire, police, schools, and things like that. But who pays for that? It's the people who living, live in the buildings around them uh, who are having to pay higher property taxes or accepting a lower quality of urban services, lower quality schools, less fire protection, less police protection. Uh, and, and so it be, the neighborhood becomes less desirable for them to live in. Uh, the second thing that's happening is that uh, years ago, uh, when in the 1950s, when the government was building high-rise housing for people, uh, they found that they got enormous amounts of crime for low-income people living in high-rise housing. But the same low-income people living in single-family homes uh, across the street from the high-rises, you didn't see it, didn't see a big increase in crime. There was an architect named Oscar Newman who did an analysis, and he figured out that what was going on was that the high-rises had lots of common areas. And so you couldn't tell somebody walking across a common area was a resident or a thief, mm. whereas the low-rises had all this private land. If you saw somebody in a backyard, they better be somebody who lived in that house, or they were probably trying to break into that house. So you knew right away if they were a resident or a thief. And as a result, he said, Oscar Newman found that uh, multifamily housing was more criminogenic. It is more vulnerable to crime because uh, it had so much common areas. So now we're building mid-rises instead of high-rises, but they still have lots of common areas on the ground floor, the, uh, the, the gardens and so on around it are common areas, the shops in the ground floor are common areas, the hallways are common areas, so you can't tell who belongs and who doesn't, so you're going to get more crime, and inevitably some of that crime is going to leak over into the adjacent neighborhood of single-family homes. And so you're going to make that neighborhood a less desirable place to be. So we're, we're hurting the people who we claim to be wanting to help. Uh, and on top of this, mid-rise housing costs three to four times as much per square foot as single-family homes. And so uh, we're saying we're going to build affordable housing. We're going to build hey, Randall, square foot apartments and call it affordable. We're going to have to have you back. This is an important conversation. <laughs> Just very quickly, where can people find your writings? Well, the best place to go is the Anti-Planner. My uh, blog is called uh, ti.org slash Anti-Planner or just Google Anti-Planner and the first thing on the list. Or go to cato.org and you'll find a lot of my papers there. Randall O'Toole, thank you so much.